Ten months from now, you're going to read through that passage in Mark that we're looking at today. And you're going to see, wow, I, I forgot this word means that. How important that is. So please bring your Bible. If you did not bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you in the back of the pew. It's in the English Standard Version. That's the version I preach out of. So please be bringing your Bibles to church. So we're in this series that today we're going to see that Jesus is the God of glory. And I want to begin with um, a story that's actually true as bizarre as it's going to seem to most of us, because you Probably many of us, or perhaps many of us, haven't heard about this. It's sort of buried down into the lore of Wikipedia. Um, I want to sort of gain some traction through this story this morning. Who's heard of the Flat Earth Society? A few of us. The Flat Earth Society started by Charles Johnson, who died a, a few years ago. The Flat Earth Society really believes the earth is as flat as a pancake. The sun being the center of the universe is a big joke, insists Charles Johnson. He was the president of the International Flat Earth Research Society. It's a group that loves to ridicule here. You're going to like this. Globites. You know, those of us that think the earth is a globe round. Johnson claims that the society had... 1,400 members. It died out a little bit. It's starting to come back, believe it or not. 1,400 members, most of which are, he says, doctors, lawyers, and engineers. I get the lawyer part of it. I don't get the other two. Interesting, interesting thing about this. They believe modern science is a club for sun worshipers. They write off the American, Russian, Chinese space programs, multi-billion dollar hoaxes. They were done in a Hollywood set. Now, even more bizarre, he was a former airplane mechanic. And along with his followers, they think the sun, they believe the sun. Friends, I'm pretty sure this isn't a hoax. They really believe this. They think the sun is a gigantic spotlight 32 miles across. And it moves in an ellipse just 3,000 miles above the center of the earth. And those stars that we see at night, well, they think it's a gargantuan canvas with holes in it and, and lights behind it. Here's the worst part, truly. Charles Johnson arrived or perpetuated these beliefs... Because he derives out of the Old Testament some verses in the scriptures that infer the earth is flat. Listen, the Old Testament writers weren't writing literally. And there's such a thing as progressive revelation. We know things now that the Old Testament writers flat out didn't know. But Johnson believes literally in those verses, and he says it doesn't matter what science says, the Bible says, which it doesn't, the Bible says that the earth is flat, the earth, the earth is flat. It is so hard. Listen, I'm, I'm going to capture you in this statement, whether you know I am or not, and I'm capturing me. It is so hard to let go 
of dearly held beliefs and ideas, even when the truth is so obviously presented. Friends, it's just flat out, no pun intended, difficult. It takes, spiritually speaking, the special work of the Holy Spirit. God, through the Spirit of God that lives in the people of God, has to do a divine work to open our eyes. Our eyes resist opening. They do. They just don't want to see the truth. Our flesh wars against the Spirit. You know, I don't know how postmodern you are, but postmodernity is all about there is nothing certain. Well, that is a certain statement, right? Even postmodernists are as certain as fundamentalists, foundationists. But there are certain truths, but we've got to labor hard to be able to be insistent upon clear truths and really, really open to learning on those things that maybe God doesn't make quite so clear in Scripture. Last week we saw this very process, this this eye-opening process of the Spirit of God beginning to work in the disciples. Remember Peter, by the way, Peter is the spokesperson spokesperson for the 12 disciples. And we often see Peter doing all sorts of things and saying all sorts of things. And last week we saw that Peter finally, finally almost exactly halfway through the Gospel of Mark finally confesses on behalf of the disciples, Matthew 16, 16, Jesus, you are the Christ, Mark doesn't add this, Matthew does, the Son of the living God. He sees the truth, finally. His eyes are opened, finally. He sees Jesus as the Messiah, meaning, Jesus, you're the Savior. Jesus, you're the one promised to us. You're the one that's going to save us And I want you to see what Matthew then says in verse 21 in that same chapter. From that time, look where I underlined it. From that time of Peter's confession, finally their eyes are open. So Jesus says it's time to come down on that reading exam to the next line of letters. or a little smaller. This is a little deeper. This is further gospel teaching. You're going to have a hard time with this, guys. But here's what you've got to know. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised. You see, Peter had what we have, a theological box, and God has to cram into it. You have that box, and I have that box. And God does this really fun thing. Every once in a while, he opens the flaps of the box and takes a box cutter to it and enlarges it. Because he doesn't like cramming into our theologies. And Peter had these ideas and he had these philosophies about what Jesus was supposed to do. And he couldn't accept that the Messiah that all the Jews were waiting for, that now he finally believed Jesus was, he couldn't accept that the Messiah was here on a mission to suffer, die, and be resurrected. It didn't fit into his theological box. So what's he do? Look at Mark chapter 8. Verse 32, 
Listen, he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. You want to know what that word rebuke means? This is so interesting. It means he forbade Jesus to talk anymore about that subject. Hey, come on, you got to love Peter. You got to love Peter. We're kind of like him, at least I am. At least he had the guts. It didn't matter that he was going over a cliff. You know, he had the guts to do it with a smile on his face. But he goes to Jesus and says, listen, I forbid you to talk about this. This isn't my theology. This isn't what I believe about the Messiah. Listen, Jesus, you're supposed to restore Israel to glory. And you're supposed to help us throw off and lead us into throwing off the shackles of Rome. Come on, we're slaves to Rome. And you're here to lead us out of that. And put us, put us back into the Old Testament splendor and glory. You know, when all the nations came to Israel. See, Peter had unwittingly committed to a distorted gospel. And it really makes me wonder, how often do we do that? How often do we commit to a distorted gospel? You see, Peter was committed to Israel. He just wasn't committed to the kingdom of God. He was committed to the glory. He wasn't committed to the cross. He was committed to the exaltation, but not the humiliation. He wanted the joy. He just didn't want the suffering. And how difficult it is to give up these distorted, precious beliefs. Can I fast forward you to Acts chapter 1? You can see it on the screen or you can turn to it. Listen, let me set this up for a second. Months have gone by. Probably another six months. Jesus has died and resurrected. He is about to be ascended back to his father. This is a conversation that happens just before he leaves and goes back to the father. And, and the disciples, look what they're going to say to him. So when they came, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, look at the box. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't get it. They still did not understand. They still had a misconception about the mission of the Messiah. You see, Jesus came to free his people, just not from Rome or any other earthly power. He came to free his people from the soul-killing grip of sin in the clutches of Satan. That was the mission. I came to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for many. That was the mission statement that Jesus gave for his life. He came to die so that we could live. Because God loves us enough to die for him, and he wants us to be freed to love him enough to live for him. That's what the mission of the gospel is about. You know, we're really not very different from Peter and the disciples. Let me test you for a minute. I think we all kind of tend to put God in the box of our own ideas and theologies. Don't we tend to build our dreams and then throw them out to God to bring them about? Tell you what, you want to see the people that have gotten mad at me the most in counseling are usually the ones that I've dared tamper with their dreams, which have become idols. Don't we tend to believe in the God who bails us out of trouble as soon as we make that prayer call? 
Now listen, let me ask you, do you worship, do I, I'm looking in a mirror, do we worship the God who calls us into suffering and doesn't hide that fact? Who says that our allegiance and our obedience to his word really isn't an option. You don't pick and choose what you want to obey. Who will place those who will not repent into everlasting damnation and hell. You really have that in your theological box? There's a wildly popular book right now that says God doesn't do that. Written by the pastor of probably the fastest growing church in our nation. See, he's got a box and God doesn't fit into it. Not all of them. The God who, in verse 34 of this chapter, of chapter 8, requires the follower to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, you're not a Jew living in the time of Jesus, and I'm not either, but can I tell you what would have gone through their mind when they heard this? Do you know that it's estimated that in Jesus' time, in his 30 to 33 years that he lived, estimated 30,000 Jews were crucified? And when they crucified Jews, listen, they crucified them on a highway, on the side of the busiest road so that everyone would see the end result of disobeying Rome. And you would be so afraid you would never rise up in rebellion. What do you mean, Jesus, deny yourself and pick up the most bloody, cursed, horrible execution symbol that they had? You're telling me I've got to pick up that cross? There's nothing good about a cross. The only thing about a cross is pain and death. And you're telling me that's what it means to follow you? That's the box enlarging and letting all of God in his mission in. See, Jesus is opening their eyes and he's helping them understand who he is. And why he came. But friends, I've got to tell you, and I don't think I'd be any different if I were one of those 12. This was overwhelming. This was flat out overwhelming. It couldn't compute. It just didn't make sense. They had masses of people following Jesus, begging from him, listening to every word that he would say. Granted, they weren't really obeying very much, but listen, they were following He had the biggest church of any Pharisee, of any rabbi, if you want to put it in modern language. And you're telling me that you're not going to bring Israel back to glory when all of these people are excited about what you're doing, that you're going to die? It doesn't fit in my box. And Jesus is about to do something, by the way, this is probably my longest introduction ever in a sermon, but Jesus is about to do something that he's not yet done to his disciples, not yet. He's about to show them by sight who he is. Yeah, he's done miracles and he's preached with authority, but listen, he had no special appearance. If you took Jesus and 11 other Jews and put them up against the wall and asked any Jew or any modern-day Gentile, which one's Jesus the Messiah, you wouldn't pick him out. He looked moder- He looked normal. He looked average. In fact, he even looked under average. He had no special appearance. He wasn't handsome. He didn't look overly intelligent. He didn't have degrees. He didn't go through schools of Pharisees. They had them. He didn't go through any of that. He was an average person. And all the while the disciples are following them, they've never yet seen 
the glory of Jesus come out. They're about to. He's about to set aside the veil of his humanity just for a brief moment. And it's going to take place in Old Testament fashion high up on a mountain. Here we go. Mark chapter 9. Look with me at verse 2. Here's the first four words, and we're going to pause. And after six days, now all of a sudden, if, listen, if you're a, a student of the Bible and you know the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you're probably already a little troubled. Because Matthew and Mark say after six days, but then here comes Luke that says about eight days. And all of a sudden the liberalists say, you see, this is why you can't trust the Bible. It can't even keep its own story straight. There's too many inconsistencies. You know what? This is the best effort of men to write down, it's not God-breathed. That's what they tell you. Listen, Mark didn't say precisely when it was. He says sometime after, eight, after six days. And Luke didn't say, by the way, Luke's a doctor. Luke's known for precision in his writing. And he doesn't write precisely. He says about eight days. But I think I could give you a clue why Mark tells us after six days. And to do that, I've got to establish a link for you back into the Old Testament. You can see it behind me. Look what it says. When Moses went up on the mountain, you're about to see Moses in this story in Mark. Oh, one link there. The cloud covered it. You're going to see a cloud. There's link number two in the glory of the Lord. There's link number three settled on Mount. There's link number four, Sinai. And now you've got to get this. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. What do you think a Jew who knew their Old Testament was going to think when they read this story and they read after six days? If they know their Old Testament, it's going to provide a link back to Exodus chapter 24. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And look what happens after those six days. On the seventh, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. There's not an inconsistency because neither of them are literal statements. Mark's doing something in his massively talented narrative ability. He's a storyteller. And in storytelling, sometimes you don't bring precision into the story because it strips the story of the impact. You symbolically connect it to larger truths. And this is what Mark is doing. And look at what it says in Mark 9, 2. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And we're not given the identity of the mountain. We're not told which mountain it is. But listen, look at verse 27 of chapter 8 in Mark. It tells us that they had left Bethsaida and they went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. They went north. They're in the very upper northern frontier of the land of Palestine. And just north of that town, Caesarea Philippi, is a high mountain. It's 9,200 feet high. It's called Mount Hermon. It's 120 miles north of Jerusalem. It's so high 
they actually today even have year-round snow. And as that snow melts, it feeds into the Sea of Galilee, that freshwater lake that we looked at a while ago. And out of the Sea of Galilee comes the River Jordan, meandering its way down to the Dead Sea. So the snow melt makes it to the Dead Sea. And if you're on Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high, and you've got a clear day, it's so high that even the curvature of the earth can't hide from you and obscure the Dead Sea. It's 100 miles south. You know, I'll just give you perspective. Mount Mitchell, the highest mountain on the east coast, 6,700 feet high. This is 9,200 feet high. Pretty big mountain. We don't know if it's Mount Hermon. It certainly seems the only mountain most experts believe it is this mountain. It's the only one that's nearby that would fit this description. And Mark tells us Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John by themselves. You hear what Mark's doing? You've got to get what Mark does. He throws in all these little points to help emphasize. They're like exclamation points. By themselves is an exclamation point. It's an asterisk. And down at the bottom of it, in your mind, it should read, oh, don't. Don't miss that. They went by themselves. Just the three of them with Jesus. Why? Because they're what Paul wrote in Galatians 2. They're the pillars of the church. So you've got lots of followers of Jesus. Listen, there's just not 12 followers of Jesus. At one point, he had to select disciples out of 70 of them. And he selected 12 that were going to be his main nucleus. And out of that 12, he was going to have a core team of three, Peter, James, and John. And they were going to have the church built on their shoulders. And they're going to be pillars of the church. And Luke tells us in his account that when they reached the top, Jesus, it just only records Jesus. And Matthew and Mark don't let us know this. Luke says Jesus began to pray. And get this, the disciples became drowsy they're fighting sleep well it's a hard climb to the top one expert that rode up this mountain on a donkey took him five hours on an animal it's a high mountains an arduous climb now they've got roads to it but back then they didn't it's a high mountain it's high altitude the oxygen is thinner harder to breathe But can I give you maybe a better reason, I think, a better reason why they're drowsy? This is me guessing, but I think it's a pretty good guess. Listen, when have you gone through grief? Can you remember a time that you went through a depression and grief? Don't you remember what your body did? It's the automatic way that your body protects itself. You just want to sleep. Worked with a lady, she's not from our church, years and years ago who went into massive, massive depression. I just wonder, I prayed so much for her that she would not kill herself. That's how badly she would get depressed. And when she became depressed, she would literally climb up the steps on her hands and knees, climb into her bed and pull all of her fur coats over the top of her, literally escape from the world and sleep her life away. They're overwhelmed. Their box has become obliterated. Their view and their theological understanding in the Messiah was decimated. It didn't compute. And when life gets like this, listen, you've got to to think for a second about the disciples. Get into their shoes. Peter, James, and John, they were fishing partners. 
They had a partnership. And listen, they had servants. You know what that means to have servants in a partnership? It means that they were wildly successful. They were wealthy. They were well-to-do. And here comes Jesus and says, listen, follow me. And they gave it all up. When's the last time you gave up your career that you were successful at to go into full-time underpaying ministry? They gave it all up. This is what they've done. They've abandoned everything to put all of their hopes into Jesus and his messiahship and his kingdom. And now it's gone. You're going to die. Jesus is praying. They're fighting sleep. And all of a sudden, the text says in Mark, Jesus was transfigured right before them. He was changed Right in front of them. You see, the Greek word for transfigured, it's going to look familiar to you, metamorpho. We get metamorphosis from it. I know, you're probably thinking caterpillar and cocoon and all that stuff. It's really beautiful stuff. But meta, it's two words. Meta means change. Morph means literally to transform the form, the body, the exterior. It means to change the outward exterior appearance. Here's what's happening. Jesus is transformed in front of them so that his outward appearance changed to reveal what his inner appearance looked like all along. In other words, they've seen Jesus who had climbed into this flesh and pulled flesh around him like a robe. All they've seen is Jesus, the human being with flesh like theirs. And Jesus, for just a short time, takes the robe of of flesh off. And what was always inside, glorious divinity, begins shining radiantly. Now, it's so fun to preach on this and maddening. The fun part is it's so evocative in its imagery. Here's the maddening part. When's the last time you've seen Jesus transfigure? We don't have any reference point. I mean, yeah, we can say, you know, preparing this, I'm thinking my dad, when I'm eight years old, who used to weld all the time, and he'd say, Tim, don't look at the welding. You're going to go blind and die. Okay, just to make it sure that I don't look. And of course, what does an eight-year-old do when his father tells him not to do that? I looked at the welding and little pinpricks of light go off. And I'm thinking, maybe that's what it looked like. I don't know. We don't have a reference point. But Mark is so helpful because look what he does. He goes on to describe this. But let me tell you what Matthew tells us in chapter 24 first. He says this radiant, glory, glorified Jesus we're, everybody on the earth is going to see this picture when Jesus returns. He, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They're going to finally see this. And we're going to see this for all eternity. And on this day and on this mountain, for these disciples, his form, his appearance changed and look what mark writes you got to see it that's why i want your bibles in front of you and his clothes became radiant now you've got to remember think peter bold pugnacious stubborn verbal before he thinks peter i don't know if you know people like that in your life they're usually sicilian but if you know people like that if i'm just kidding If you know people like that, and it could be me, we gesticulate a lot. We use our hands a lot, right? 
Can't you... I know, you got to imagine a little bit. You don't come to church to imagine. You want cold, literal truth. But listen, just imagine. Imagine Peter. Mark is writing the gospel of Mark because he's the interpreter of Peter. Mark is so fun to read because this story has all about it in eyewitness account. This is eyewitness language. And so Mark is telling, Peter is telling Mark what happened on that mountain. And I could just picture Peter, his eyes bugged out wide, gesticulating like a madman, telling Peter that, listen, or telling Mark, listen, Mark, you should have been there. It was incredible. You should have seen the glory of Jesus. It shined so bright. You know what? You know why I think Mark, um, Peter was doing this? Because read it with me. Read that verse with me in Mark. When you're, having, when you're having a hard time describing something, you pile description on top of description. Wow, that new roller coaster ride was the most incredibly awesome, fun thing I've ever ridden. You have, you can't, one word can't capture it. And this is what Peter does when he's telling Mark this story, and this is what Mark captures. And his clothes became radiant. You know what that, there's a job, by the way. There's a job in Jesus' day to clean clothes, and there's a person that did that job. The name of that job was a fuller, F-U-L-L-E-R. A fuller's job, kind of like our dry cleaner today, their job was to take soiled clothes and bring them back to their original lustrous color, to bleach white clothing. And this is what Mark is writing, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. He's saying there's not a fuller alive that can get close to the whiteness of the clothes of Jesus Christ during that moment. And even more, look what he writes. He says they were radiant. It's the Greek word stilbo. Ladies, you all better know this word because you either have, have experienced it or you're going to. You remember that day you got your engagement ring with that diamond? I don't care how small that diamond is or how big it is. When that sun hits it, didn't you put that thing up to the sun and let the refraction go and just blind you with joy? That's what it means. Stilbo means refracted light, glittering like the sun off of the facets of a diamond. And he's saying that Jesus was radiant, that he was flashing light. Dazzling, flashing, whiter than anything they had ever seen on earth. And how about even a little bit more If you go to Luke chapter 9, verse 29, it says that the appearance of his face was altered. You ever caught that before? The appearance of his face was altered. You know, John John has a vision later. He's about 90-something years old when he has this vision. He was the oldest, longest living of any of the disciples. He was the last of those 12 to die. He was the only one of those 12 not to be martyred. He died, most likely, on an island in exile. But he has a vision, and it's recorded in Revelation 1.16, and he writes, His face, Jesus, was like the sun shining in full strength. And all of a sudden, I can guarantee you that John was teleported back in time in his mind to the moment on the top of that, I think, Mount Hermon, when Jesus was transfigured before them, and he became dazzling, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And then add into this shocking sight. Listen, they were drowsy. I don't think they're drowsy anymore. 
Add into this shocking sight, verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Do you remember the last verses of the entire Old Testament? You see, God said finally in the Old Testament in Malachi, that's it. You have so rejected me. You will not listen to me. You have spurned my words. You want to reject me? Then listen, I'm going to pull away. I'm going to give you 400 years of darkness, what life is like without me. You want to reject me? All right, I'll oblige you. Here's 400 years, and you're not going to hear a word from me. But he ends that time in Malachi, just before he goes basically into exile for 400 years, he ends the time with this. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who do we have on this mountain? In Mark chapter 9, we've got Moses and Elijah. And if you're an alert Jew in that time, and if you're alert today, you'll find there's a link now. Jesus is providing the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the promises that are all through the Old Testament are being fulfilled before their eyes in the New Testament. And for any promise to be given, there's got to be witnesses. Listen, they had, they had a law that said every single promise has to be ratified in the presence of two or three witnesses. Well, here's witness number one. Here's Moses. You remember Moses, right? He was the hero of the Exodus. He was their deliverer. He gave the law of God to them. The Jews, there was nobody more highly venerated and herofied and respected than Moses to the Jews. He was the top of the list. He was the lawgiver. He led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves. And he led them to freedom. And then you've got Elijah. And there's not a single more powerful prophet in all of the Old Testament than Elijah. Elijah stood alone against 850 prophets. 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah, up on top of Mount Carmel. And all the nation of Israel had gathered. And there was a massive cosmic divine competition. Let the real God answer by fire. And Jehovah answered and obliterated the sacrifice. Elijah killed all 850 false prophets. There is nobody more powerful than Elijah. And in fact, listen, Elijah didn't die like we die. God came down in a chariot of fire to a field right next to Elijah and his apprentice, Elisha, and said, Elijah, hop in. I'm taking you straight to heaven. And he did. And nobody was buried like Moses because God says he's so, he's so much my friend and I don't want you venerating his body in his grave. So I'm coming down and I'm going to take Moses' dead body and I'm going to do the burying it and you're not going to know where it is. We've got this mountaintop experience. We've got J James and Peter and we've got John and all of a sudden into this radiant metamorphosis transfigurated Jesus Christ we've got Moses and we've got Elijah and they're talking they're having a conversation and Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about but guess what this is why you need the whole counsel of God 
Because Luke tells us what they're talking about. I love Luke. Luke says, okay, Matthew and Mark, if you're not going to tell them, I'm going to tell them. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 9. They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word spoke in the Greek, it's in a tense that means they spoke on and on and on. This wasn't a flyby conversation. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then you go to Luke chapter 9 and you see it behind me and you see that word departure. And if you looked into the Greek and you, you would see that the word departure, we've got in English, in the Greek it's the word exodus. Wow. Do you see what Luke is saying? You got Moses, the deliverer, that brought the people in the exodus out of Egypt, slavery to the Egyptians. Here's Jesus. And they're talking about his exodus. He's going to lead his people, not out of Egypt and not out of Rome. He's going to lead them out of sin and out of eternal death. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about this, and Peter and James and John are in on the conversation as listeners. They get to hear all of this. You know what I like about this picture? There's, there's so much in it. I just don't have time to bring it out, but let me just give you snapshots. This is so beautiful because the fact that Moses and Elijah are their friends, it tells you that the resurrection really is true. Listen, if you're in Christ and you die, one day you're going to die, and I am too, unless God comes before then, Jesus comes back before them, but we're going to die. And there's a life beyond the grave. The annihilists and the cessationists are wrong. There is life, and you're going to be raised to that life. And guess what? Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're talking because eternal life is intimate. It's relational. I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven. If you think of playing a harp all day or doing nothing but bowing down before a glittering throne. Listen, it is full of life. No no pun intended. It's full of relationship. It is intimate. And it's all centered around Jesus. They're there for Jesus. They're there around Jesus. They're resurrected. They've been with God. And God brings them to this planet one more time to help open the eyes of Peter, James, and John. That's their purpose. You don't lose your identity when you enter eternity. Listen, they knew. I don't know how. Maybe Moses and Elijah said, hey, Peter, James, and John, I'm Moses. This is Elijah. I don't know what they did. But somehow they were Moses and Elijah. They weren't some, you know, assimilated into the Borg. That was my favorite episode ever of Star Trek. <laughs> Drove me mad because they ended part one and then waited a whole summer before part two. I hated that, never forgave them, but it was great. The Borg is the best. You don't get assimilated into one consciousness. You retain your identity. Listen, this is massive teaching here, and we don't have time to bring it up. Let's move on. For, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, a little bit strange word, because he just called him the Messiah, but Rabbi, teacher, it is good that we are here. Rabbi means master. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And oh, by the way, Peter, nobody really asked for your opinion. I mean, it's not like they were talking and then they said, Peter, what do you think we ought to do? He, listen, they're talking and Peter interrupts them. 
Come on, you got to love Peter. Get the bad with the good. But at least he's doing something. Nobody asked for his opinion. He just, desi- he just decided to contribute. But there's a reason that he blurts this out, and Mark is so kind to let us know what it is. Verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. The word meaning frightened out of their senses. Listen, Peter can't even think straight, but his lips keep moving. Some of us, certainly me, if you know me, have this incredibly unwonderful ability. Somehow the brain can stop sending signals to your auditory nerves and your lips, and somehow they keep flapping. I do that all the time. This is Peter. He can't even think straight. He is frightened out of his mind, and yet he says, it is good that we're here. Okay, you got that right, Peter. Great observation. But then he goes downhill quick. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, And one for Elijah. You know, fear tends to do that. By the way, we all have a filter. We all have a filter that goes from our brain to our lips and it stands between them. And we impulsively think things and thank God there's a filter that keeps it from coming out our mouth sometimes. But when you're afraid, fear makes the filter inoperable. And that's what's happening with Peter. He's blurting out straight from his heart, undiluted, what's been there all the time. And I'm going to give you a pretty big insight into this in a minute. Here's what I used to think about this. I used to teach this. I don't think it's true, though. Here's what I used to teach. I used to teach, you know what, this this is one of those spiritual euphoric moments. You know, you go to a retreat, you go to a camp, you don't want to come home. Because life's hard to live at home. Man, it was great at the camp, great at the retreat, great at the conference. And Peter was saying, can I build you temporary shelters? Can we stay here on the mountain? Listen, I don't want to go back. We're headed back to the valley in just a few verses. This guy's going to come running up to them. And his son's demon-possessed, epileptic-like, throwing him into a fire, trying to kill the kid. Uh, Who wants to go back to that? I think Peter, I used to think, Peter was saying, let's just stay here here i don't think that's what it is you know what he was saying i think i'm pretty sure let us make three tents that word is three booths or tabernacles and the jews had an incredibly joyful feast and they celebrated it once a year and all the people would celebrate it's called the feast of tabernacles the Feast of Sukkoth. And in that feast, for about a week, they would build these booths and they would build them out of pine branches, or not pine branches, but but tree branches, and they would put palm fronds over them and they would dangle fruit and they would dangle vegetation. It was around the harvest and it was a, a time of just incredible joy because God provided for Israel by bringing them out of Egypt. Listen, I'm going to connect this for you. The Feast of Tabernacles was all about a joyful celebration that their God is their deliverer. And I think what Peter was doing was saying this. His theological box came back. He says, Jesus, this has got to be the time. Malachi says Moses and Elijah are going to come right before. 
And now you're, you're transfigured. It's glorious. This is the time. Let's build the booth because you're going to lead us out of Rome and you're going to lead us back into a nation of glory. So let's celebrate it the way that we celebrate it every year. I'm gonna, I'll build them for you. And let's inaugurate their, your kingdom right here on top of this mountain. And when we go down, we'll declare to the masses, it's time, gather around behind me. I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to lead you out of Rome, and all the nations are going to come worship at our doorstep. I think that's what Peter was doing. Here's why I think Peter was doing that. Because look what happens. All of a sudden, a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Friends, it's been... Please pound this in your mind. This is significant. It's been 600 years since anyone has seen this cloud of glory. It left the temple in Ezekiel's day. And it hasn't been seen since. God said, there's too much idolatry in Israel. There's too much wickedness. You won't listen to me. Therefore, I'm leaving my temple. And the cloud got up, left the temple in Ezekiel's sight and went up to the sky. And it hasn't been seen since until this literal very day. And I don't know what it looked like, but I know in Exodus... When that cloud of glory came down, it was flashing light and it was booming thunder. And all the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai were scared out of their senses. I don't know if that was happening, but it says a cloud overshadowed them. And here comes the voice of the Heavenly Father. This is my son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Open your ears. Peter, James, and John. And don't just hear my son's words. Listen. It's a word in the Greek that means to hear and obey. This is a rebuke. But it's a grace-filled rebuke. Listen, when God rebukes you, friend, it's his grace. He disciplines those he loves. And if he's rebuking you, that's his grace to turn your life from certain destruction back into his glory. And he rebukes them. And he says, you've got to listen to my son because you're still not hearing him and your eyes still are closed. He's telling you the full gospel. He's telling you what his mission is. And Peter, you're still wanting to inaugurate his kingdom on top of this mountain. This isn't about leading Israel back to glory. That's going to happen someday. This is about leading people out of sin. And leading them into eternal life. So listen to him. And do what he tells you. If you're a good speaker. If you're a master speaker. And a master presenter. You're going to learn a speaker's technique. And here's what it is. Every one of you have your full attention on me. That's what silence does. Those pauses. Here's a silence. And here's an anticlimactic pause that's going to rivet their attention. Verse 8. And suddenly, after that voice boomed, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Friends, they were flat in their faces. That's what the voice of God will do to you. 
You can't stand in arrogance in the voice of God in his presence. They were flat on their faces, out of their senses, and they look up and it is quiet. And there's nobody there but Jesus. And there's a world of meaning for us. Listen, Peter, James, and John, Moses was great, but he's dead and he's gone. And Elijah was powerful, but he is with my father and he's not here anymore. I'm here, I've always been here, and I'm always going to be here. I am the bridge, the Old Testament to the New. Listen to me. Put your trust in me. And listen and do what I'm telling you to do. That's obedience. And there's a little haunting voice that tells all of us, listen, Pastor Tim Ackley has no power to change your life, none. And Pastor Jason can whip up the best worship that you've ever heard, and it will have no power to change your life. And Pastor Tim Van Summeren can take you on the most incredible mission trips, and it, he has no power to change your life. The only one that does is Jesus. So don't put your hope in the books. Don't put them in me. Don't put them in any human being. Don't put them in a conference. Put them in Jesus. And follow him and listen to him. He's the only one that can change your life. Friends, you are likely, if you haven't yet, to experience mountaintop experiences. Where God opens your eyes a little bit more to his glory. To the glory of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's going to be a retreat. Maybe it's at a retreat that the teacher and the speaker leads you to Jesus and you see him a little bit more clearly than you ever did before. But he opens your eyes a thousand ways, but always for the same reason that you might see Jesus a little more clearly and love him a little more dearly. Is that happening in your life? This is the entire point of this series that you would see Jesus a little more clearly than you ever did, and then doing that, you would love him more dearly than you ever have. That's the point of his word. Follow Jesus. You will never be disappointed. He is an amazing God. Lord, thank you so much for this event. Lord, it's so eye-opening, and I mean that literally. God, you have amazed us with your word Sometimes I wish I could have been there. I don't know, though, Lord, if I would have. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't think I would have done anything differently than Peter. Lord, we have our boxes and we make you fit into them and you don't really like that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to your word fresh and set aside our preconceived ideas and the things that we don't like about what you say that we wouldn't gloss over them, that we would wrestle with them, that we would see who you really are, and that we would follow that Jesus Christ. We love you. Pray that we would learn to love you more. And in Jesus' name, amen.